The scripture for today's sermon comes from Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through chapter 2, verse 10. The word of God speaks to us. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside, walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word to us. Hey, well, good morning. You guys are spread out a bunch this morning. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. And I get to step into this moment where for the next three weeks, we're leaning into feminine virtue. It's actually something really beautiful for us. It's something that is bigger than just, uh, hey, we're going to have a talk about ladies in these things. There's something really profound. And I had an opportunity to be at the conference last weekend for a good part of it and was like blessed in abundance to experience it, what little bit I did and to see uh, so many ladies saying, God, what would you have for us that's far, that is bigger and more beautiful than what this world is selling? It was awesome. And I want us to lean into that over the next few weeks, this Sunday and the following two Sundays, because it's something that is not just limited to our ladies, this is for all of us. So let me give you a word to our guys before we, we get into this too deeply. If you think that today and the next few weeks are simply like a tune-up for our ladies, you are missing the word of God right before you. 
You're missing the invitation from God that he's calling us to, to stand in this. And you're missing something particular that maybe if you were a part of our masculine virtue last year, that God wants to do in us and through us by unlocking something through this feminine virtue series that we're stepping into right now. Uh, so I just encourage you to not pull back, not think that this is for somebody else, not disengage or, or distract yourself with endless scrolling of something else else. This is as much for you as it is for anybody in our room. And our ladies actually need us to be good listeners and attentive students of the word of God that we would lean in and not just in knowledge that we come to try to fix something, that we would lean in as people, as men of repentance as we walk through this together. All right? We're, no, we're, we're not dummies. We're not dummies. We recognize that tackling a conversation around gender is one that is loaded with landmines all around us right now. We live in a culture in which so much of our world has fragmented around sexuality and gender in ways that are, are simply just not, they're not helpful, let alone healthy or biblical. So our, our culture is fragmenting to all the way to, an ex, to one extreme, which is like, we'll never talk about gender. It's just a cultural construct or, or never bring any of that up. It's just part of a, historic, a historical record of oppression to something on the other end, which you see in religious circles, which is like, oh, men and women can't be around each other because it always leads to sin and always leads to bad. And, and, and we don't really know how to handle this. And so we're just not gonna talk about it. And we're just gonna kind of put ladies in this spot, which helps with kids and sometimes sings or does something like that. And neither of those are helpful or biblical. And so we're not just like saying, hey, we, we want to step into some hot button issue and give you more takes and, and something like that. We actually want to do the deep work and the hard work of going below the line and saying, God, where are you leading us? And where do we need to repent? And what, what does it look like for uh, us to be complementary image bearers together in the church and in our community that show your glorious work to a watching world? That's really hard work. But it's not just the cultural baggage that we've got to carry into this. Uh, like as we talk about the church, there's a whole other level to this, which is the church is part of this thing that the, the Bible calls the body of Christ, right? And it puts it in this metaphor. So if you have all this cultural baggage that's out there, and then you have like on top of that is, hey, we're all called to be the body of Christ. And we've talked about this before. So I, I don't need to go too much, except that my contact's like trying to jump out and be baptized. Um, the body of Christ, elbows don't always value knees. It's like a knee is like, what the heck do, you, do I need an elbow for? And so on top of all the cultural pieces, we come to this as different parts of the body of Christ trying to make sense out of perspectives that others bring to this. That's a challenge unto itself. That's a challenge unto itself. And we need to be people who are willing to do the work of like, what's cultural in this? And what is like, I'm not hearing you or I'm hearing you in a different way because, because I'm an elbow and you're a knee. Where is that at play? And as if that's not enough, as if that's not enough, all of us bring another level, which is baggage and brokenness and hurts and wounds. 
in areas where we feel like we've had our hands slapped or we feel like we've stepped in it, in areas in which we're afraid to go and do the deep work. And it's easier just to kind of slap a coat of paint over it and just be like, oh, we're all better, right? What we're asking, what we're asking, what we're praying, what we're pleading with God to do is heal broken places in our life. Is form us more and more into the image of God. And to walk in a way in which the, the world around us would experience the fullness of Christ by how we're living into this. I, I, I don't want to act like any of it's going to be easy. None of it's going to be easy. And yet, it is all worth it for us to follow after Jesus in faithfulness. And so I want to pray for you, and I desperately ask you to pray for me in all of this. And let's say, let, let's just ask God to do a work in us and through us today. All right? Father, we need you. We need you so much. We need you to move us past culture. We need you to move us past our, our, our own baggage. We need you to move us past our blind spots of different parts of the body. We need you to lead us directly to your throne of grace. And I pray for ears to hear today, hearts to receive today. And we pray for the beautiful work that you began in women that you redeemed through the finished work of Jesus for you to make much of today through the present work and power of your Holy Spirit. We need you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus 1 and 2. And if you have your Bibles, I just invite you to open up to that. We're going to be there. But so often uh, when we go to something like, hey, we're going to talk about what femininity looks like in life and what it looks like to walk as a woman. So often we just get kind of pigeonholed into one or two ladies that we get look to all the time. And, and sometimes it's just like, hey, let's talk about Eve. And Eve is amazing. And so much of that, we did a lot of work around Eve when we were in Genesis. And, and like Eve, is, here is Eve. Well, like that matters and, and language always matters, right? Language always matters, whether it's uh, words that we use or grammar and how it all works together. Language matters. But in the Bible, divine language sets reality. And so you're at the beginning of Genesis and you're saying like, hey, God speaks and the world comes into existence. Divine language sets reality. When you hear human language come out, it, human language interacts with that reality. It's, it's Adam saying this about even Human language in Genesis corresponds and reacts to that reality. It, it, he, he names Eve, right? And, and Eve's name means something. Eve's name, it means life or living. And so then you get this moment in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, in which here's what is said. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, catch this. This is after the fall, immediately as the curse is being proclaimed right here. And in this story, Eve doesn't have any children yet. And this is important for us because Eve is the mother of all living, not because 
of something that she has done or has happened in her life, but because of the essence of who God has made her to be. The essence of who God has made her to be. This is important. She believes him. She believes the gospel and she lives into this reality even as they known sin and move out of this space. And so we talk about Eve and we, we have this moment and we talk often about Mary and Mary gets built up in so many ways and Mary's remarkable. I'm not trying to bring Mary down in any way. Mary is this young girl that 2,000 years ago gave her yes to God and God radically changed everything, pushing back darkness through the baby that would be in her womb. Everything changed because of that. Sin and death and the gloom of life, all is overwhelmed because of a birth and a baby right here, a mother and her yes. And so all this matters to us, all of this, and though, though not one of Eve's or, or Mary's sisters throughout history, or not one of you will have like the incarnate son of God that is born to you. Not one of it. That's like a, a, a small little heresy check for all of you. Like, can we agree to that? None of you are giving birth to the savior of the world. And th there's so many ladies throughout history who have experienced loss or or, or the death of a dream in which you've longed to have children. And that hasn't been a part of your story at this point. But the reality is that all of the sisters of Eve, the sisters of Mary throughout history are life givers, not because of something that you've done or has happened to you, but because God has baked it into your You're life givers. And in a crazy world that is right has become wrong and friends have become foes. And we don't know where anything lands on in this cultural spectrum anymore. Like we absolutely need ladies to stand as life givers in this culture. And Exodus 1 and 2 is a tremendous place that helps us to see it. And so this morning... I want us to take it in two parts, in two parts. And I want to be extremely sensitive because I know there's so much, just there's so many raw nerves attached to this. There's so many things happening here. And there are two parts. So chapter one is around this like relational aspect and, and, and capacity of being life givers that we see in and through these midwives. Some of them may have been mothers. Some of them were not. We're not told all the details of that. But, but whether they were biologically mothers is not really the issue here. These midwives have an important part to play in this story, and they model something for us. And then the second part of this is in chapter two, where we look particularly at a mother, Jochebed, the story of Jochebed, and, and what that shows us in, in this particular grace that is on mothers. I don't want to flatten it. I don't want to, I want to be sensitive to it, but I want us to take it in two parts for that story. 
And so as you, as you find Exodus 1 and 2, let's, let me just give you a shorthand backstory to this. Like the Genesis account ends, you've had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and then you get to Exodus, and here we get this one line at the beginning here of Exodus 1.8. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And you're like, that's, a, that's like so much is packed in Joseph because this Joseph is important for us. He's a link in a long chain uh, of this, but like it, it packs so much into, they didn't know Joseph, which means he didn't know the promise of God. And in Joseph is the promise of God. It's not that Joseph is the promise of God. It's that God had promised to move. The loss of Joseph isn't really about Joseph. It's about God himself. The one true God who would provide a seed to bring blessing to the nations. It was a promise that God himself was going to bring peace and restoration and salvation. And it's in that promise God reveals that he isn't just the God of heaven, but he's the God of history and every bit of it. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God, the only true creator. The ultimate life giver. We see this pictured in these ladies here. And so what we have as we step into this, it says, it says like, and they forgot Joseph. They didn't know Joseph anymore. But what that means is that God's work is, forgetting, is forgotten. God, the work God has been about has been forgotten, but also like the worth and the dignity of people have been forgotten. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is now, is now trying to work the Hebrews to the bone as slaves, and so these people have grown, and here we have this important lesson for us as we think about what the Bible is trying to communicate. If we forget who God is, if we forget who God is, we forget who people are. If we forget who God is, then we forget that people are image bearers of this God. And if we forget what God is doing, we forget what people are for. We forget what they're for. And loss of knowledge of God led to the enslavement of Egypt because they forgot who Joseph was. They forgot the promises of God, which has led to, well, why do we have all these people anyway? And so now Egypt is, or Israel is enslaved right here. And eventually what we're gonna read here in the next line is eventually slavery gives way to infanticide in which you're killing all these babies right here. And so we're in Exodus 1, verse 15. It says this. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, here's the instruction that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is giving to these midwives. When you see the Hebrew women on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. And that's not out of the goodness of his heart. That's like, we're gonna take these women. 
It's not out of the kindness of Pharaoh's heart. This is what it's going to be. 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so it's in this culture, in this culture of death, that God sparks a resistance movement. Not through warriors, not through politicians, not through uh, the, the priests, and not through uh, some sort of mighty men coming together, not through some sort of rainbow super Christian that shows up on the scene in this, but through midwives and through moms. And you can almost hear there's a, a line in Hebrew chapter 12, which talks about like this great cloud of witnesses gathers. And sometimes we just put like some names that we would put up there and stuff. But we have to think like these midwives are part of that story of the great clouds of witnesses of faith throughout history. These midwives are right there. And I happen to think that these midwives of Israel would ask us a number of questions. I think at least three, but maybe more. Uh, There's at least three questions that I think these midwives would ask of us. It's whom will you fear? Here's the first question. Whom will you fear? You see, Pharaoh's plan was literally to grind the people of God down through slavery and exterminate them through the killing of all the baby boys. And then he comes to the midwives and says, you're going to be a part of it. If, if you're reading the story, if you're thinking about the story, you have to recognize the humanity that this is a terrifying moment in their lives. And the first thing that these midwives model for us is to stand in a world full of all sorts of scary things and teeth and claws and to stand in it and to recognize that their God is bigger than all of those terrifying things. Maybe the most powerful person in the world is standing there giving them a terrible order. And they were able by faith, by God's grace, to stand in this moment and say, our God is bigger than however big Pharaoh looks right in front of us. Our God is bigger. These people model this with all the scary things that are said, with the future, with chaos, with disasters, with everything. They're modeling for us that God is moving in and through circumstances far beyond their understanding. And maybe they remembered the story of Joseph because Pharaoh had forgot, but maybe they remembered that what man meant for evil, God can use for good. Which plays out in this. It plays out right here. Being a life giver in a world full of sin and death is dangerous business on its best day. Being a life giver behind enemy lines brings with it a whole level, a whole other level of stakes and consequences. It is an enemy territory in which you are asked to believe. Whom will you fear? And my hope for our ladies, 
is that you would stand, that you would stand with a stubborn refusal, with the stubborn refusal of the midwives to shrink before any Pharaoh that would be before you. I feel this for you. I feel this for our our ladies of this church. I feel this for my own daughters. I have three daughters that I, I pray this for. But that our ladies would embody what these midwives are picturing here and had to live out themselves, but embody the words of Proverbs 31, 25, which says, strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the time to come. Now, uh, just mark that one right there, that she laughs at the time to come. Because here we go. And here's the second question I would ask. I, I, think our, I think the midwives would ask, will you join God in what he's doing? I think the midwives would come to us, and, and, and particularly to our ladies, and say, will you join God in what he is doing? Even though there's scary things over here, will you join him in what he's doing in this world? Notice verse 18 says this. Clearly time has gone on. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? Okay, let's just pause right here for just a second. Here's a moment of truth, right? Here's a moment that if you're paying attention to the story, you're feeling. Like, here's a moment of answer and what is going to happen. Here's a moment where we're going to die. Here's a moment where all sorts of things, this is, the, this is the fork in the road, right? Pharaoh calls the midwives and says, why have you not done what I've commanded you to do? 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. I love that line. I love that line. Your women are weak. Ours are strong. Your women are weak. What is it in Proverbs 31? She laughs at the time to come. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife. Hey, she's doubled down on it. The midwives have doubled down on it because they're like, yeah, your women are not like our women. Ours are having babies so fast, we can't even keep up. Sorry. She laughs at the time to come. You know, the, the answer seems obvious in a vacuum sitting in Yukon, Oklahoma. It seems obvious, like, oh, we're not going to toss what God has given us into the Nile. We're not going to do that. Of course not. We would never do that. It's entirely different when the enemy is standing right before you. And the pressure mounts, and you feel it. You can feel the teeth. You can feel the fear. You can feel the trembling of all of it. The midwives were quite simply receptive to God and what he was doing far more than all the pressure that the world could put on them. They knew that God was working and they decided we're gonna join him in it. But, but as simple as that seems, it doesn't mean it's easy. And what God was doing was dangerous and costly and that God was going to ask more of them than they, than they could supply on their own. And yet God would meet them in every bit of it. Like, just imagine here how often I'm like, I'm like, well, God, I'll do that. I'll follow you if you'll just tell me how every bit of it's going to play out. And yet these ladies, these women, these midwives had no idea what the end of the story would be. They had no idea how this was going to play out. They just knew that they wanted to take one more step in faithfulness. And they were going to walk with God and not with Pharaoh. 
And so ladies, in this room, in this moment, I think it is intuitively obvious that babies are inconsiderate things. They don't come on time. They don't, they, they don't like work on our schedules. I, I know several of you are experiencing this right now. Several of you might've been up all night with your little ones who were so kind to wake you in the middle of the night for feeding and different aspects of life with that. Babies uh, are, like as one comedian says, babies are the worst roommates. Like you would kick them out. Like they're the worst, absolute worst roommate. You're crazy, friend. And yet these babies are there. These babies are helpless. Apart from a mother, a midwife coming along their side. And we're not really having a baby's conversation. We're having, how do we stand in a moment where there are people around us in desperate need and we join God in the work that he's doing in and around them. Ladies, I pray that the, the actions and the attitudes that the midwives are modeling, a willingness to be inconvenienced, a willingness to, to sacrifice and to serve wherever God leads would be a mark on your lives. And then there's this third question I think that they would stand and ask us. I think they would, they would come right to us and ask, will you stand? Because this is particular to the midwife's job, right? Will you stand in the blood, the mess, and the pain of life and point ahead to joy? To joy. I, I have been in the room three times for three little, little ones being born. I was there. Experienced. I said all sorts of things I regret that my wife reminds me of all the time. But what I think to be true is that the birth is always a wild ride. I mean, if, you, if your baby is born and like, man, that came super fast, just like a Hebrew woman. Like if it came, all these things, it's like still, that's a wild ride. That is a wild ride. Like, how did that happen? And yet there are other times in which it is a journey, it's a long one, and it is challenging and it's messy and it's hard. And in my expert opinion, having been beside it, it's kind of painful. It's like, it's a painful ride in this. And the nurses, the midwives who were there, for all of it, who are far smarter than me, were these saints that came alongside my wife and said, man, I know this hurts. I know this hurts. You can press on because in just a second, this little one is going to be here. I know this hurts. But it's through this in which you get to hold this little one. It's through this in which you get to hold this other one. In which they echo the words of Jesus, who's like, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before Jesus, endured the cross and despised his shame. Like again, friends, we're having a conversation that's bigger than children. 
and motherhood. We're saying, like, how has God wired women particularly to stand in the mess and the pain of life and, and help all of us see past the momentary challenges, the momentary afflictions, and to say, I know we all want to quit. I know that we want to sit down. I know that this hurts and it's painful and it's messy, but it's through this in which we experience the joy that God has for you. I pray our ladies would know that. And there are things happening right now in our church, right now in our community groups that feel like death. In our church, we need life givers standing, championing the reality that God is working. And that he who began a good work in you faithful to see it to completion, that he's worth it and that he will supply all that you need. That's what the midwives are modeling in this. It's women walking in the ways of Jesus, regardless of their situation, who have incredible and particular, particular ability and invitation to bless and image the hands and feet of Christ. I say that regardless of your situation because my family has been shaped and formed by so many things. There's so many things that have, have been a part of this story that God has done in our home. But one part that is bigger than words can express, one part is that of a life-giving big sister to my girls. And not just for my girls, a life-giving little sister to Cindy and I. Who walks in singleness and a longing to be married and a longing for children of her own that she carries so deeply in ways that I, I don't fully experience with her. And yet in all of that, she carries grace she carries herself with grace and she has showered blessings on our family for the better part of the last 20 years. Our, our, our family, our story would not be the same without her. And she's not alone. There are others, there are others that we could name. There are others that are bonus family to us. There are others that have been a part of that story. But the picture that I'm telling you is that life givers are essential for the depth and the glory of the people of God. Amen? And hear how this ends. Verse 20 says, and so God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. How good is that? Here's the takeaway. If the people of God are to flourish, they need spiritual dads and brothers and moms and sisters. We need all of it. Growing, and this is not some zero sum game where if just like if just the guys will grow, or this is just for ladies over the next couple of weeks, and I hope that they get a lot out of this. No, as as each part of the body grows and is formed more and more into the image of Christ, all of us are blessed. All of us are better off for it. And the whole Bible is full of these stories. 
The whole Bible tells us of those women who were receptive to God and the life that he brings, turning around and giving it to others. Exodus 2 will tell us not just of a mother, Jochebed is the story we're going to step into, but it also tells us about Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter is a part of Exodus 2. It tells us about Moses' sister, Miriam, in Exodus 2. We get to see she's a part of this. So there's daughters and there's sisters and there's mothers. And here, friends, hear me. Over the next few weeks, we're leaning into those aspects of what it looks like as well. But the New Testament gives us plenty of examples. I'll just give you a couple. Acts chapter nine tells the story of a woman in the church who died. First of all, we have a lot of babies being born in this church. I want you to just write down this as a possible name for you. Her name was Dorcas. I want us to try to bring that back, see if we can get it in the top 10 next year and see what happens. I'm confident that UConn alone can help that. Help that. Acts chapter nine tells a story about this lady, Dorcas, who was so beloved by her community and the people that she was walking in, that when she died, when she died, catch this, everyone mourned, that's to be expected, everybody mourned. But then in their mourning, they were like, forget this, we're calling Peter. They get Peter, Peter comes and he raises her from the dead. They're not doing that for everybody. We read about the gospel hospitality of Lydia in Acts chapter 16, in which her her home becomes this incubator of the early church. We read about Priscilla, who with her husband, Aquila, explained the gospel, explained the gospel to Apollos, who Apollos then takes it on all his missionary journeys. We hear about the life-giving words of Philip's four single daughters, we read this in Acts chapter 21 in which his, his daughters are prophesying and speaking over the church in really beautiful ways. We read at the end of Romans, Romans 16, we are told about Rufus's mom. This is, it just comes up briefly. Rufus's mom, who in every way might as well have been Paul's mom. And this means something to me because it's like, she, she's on his bio mom, but she is his bonus mom in so many ways so dear, the ministry that she brings to his life. And so my prayer is that we would have sisters full of faith and courage to stand in the middle of real life, bringing their their gifts and their talents and and passion to cultivate life. Whether you're young or you're old, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, if you're a, a woman, if you are a woman, if you are a woman, you have a life giving ministry that the world around you needs. I pray that you'd hear this next pivot with all the grace and love of a father of a husband, of a pastor in this church, that as we move from the midwives to a particular mother, I know that there's sting in that. I know there's sting. But I also don't want to fall into the cultural trap where we just flatten everything and say it's an all-skate. It's not. 
women, regardless of where you're at, are life givers, have the capacity and potential to, to walk as life givers in this place that brings so much more than simply babies in this world. But there is something particular to motherhood that we want to name and that the text names, and I don't want to run from it. I know that it, it stirs things up, and I want to invite you, if it does, not to pull back after the service, but to lean in and to let us weep with you who are weeping and love you with everything we can. In Acts, or in Acts, in Exodus chapter two, we get the story of Jochebed. And I want you to read this with me. Chapter two, verse one, it says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Remember, this is the, the environment that chapter two is taking place in is where these boys are being murdered. And so you have a mother who has experienced an acute threat. She saw that he was a fine child. I wish I knew more about what that, that meant. I wish I knew more how that played out because every mother I've ever known, as soon as she lays eyes on her child, is like, that's a fine child. Have you ever seen one like this? And then it moves to three months she hid him. But verse three, hear this. It's like you can hear the piano change its tone. And you can hear the music change in this movie. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And I just want to draw our attention to a handful of things, particularly around motherhood. Motherhood proclaims hope in God. In a dark and broken world, motherhood proclaims hope in God. And it's so easy to look at a story like this and be like, man, Jacobed, know the world you're in. It's a crazy place to raise kids right now. Maybe you don't want to do that. They're, they're taking all your boys. Maybe wait this one out or maybe do this or maybe pursue your career first or do all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things that you could say. And in the midst of an oppressive and demonic culture, motherhood proclaims hope in God. Jochebed stands as an example of a defiance of evil. She's proclaiming that this world is God's. And I don't know how all this is going to play out, but I know that God is bigger than everything around us. And she trusts in his providence, in his provisions, in his promise every step of the way. And mothers are a picture uh, of the hospitality of God. Of course, others can be that as well. Men can be pictures of hospitality. Uh, regardless of your circumstance, all of us can carry hospitality in us, but mothers picture it in a particular way because the, the, the dependence of a baby is, is so profound 
that, that it is so profound and it comes in all different ways that are largely inconvenient and it comes in different places in different ways in which there is no shortage of time that we would think, I would rather be sleeping. I would rather be doing all sorts of things. I have a million things on my to-do list and yet this child needs me. This child needs me. One book that we read over the course of last year puts it this way. In Genesis of Gender, it says, a pregnant woman is an image of that love that generates all things. The love in which we live and move and have our being. It's picturing it. It's picturing the hospitality of God. It reminds us again and again of this fountain of blessing that only comes from God, that he is a good giver and that he flings the doors open. But moms picture that in particular ways. Three, mothers are offering unseen worship. In addition to the night feedings, things that happened while everyone else was asleep. And if, in addition to Jochebed wondering every day of three months if this was going to happen, over the course of that time when no one was watching, when no one else saw, somewhere she snuck off and she prepared a basket that one day she was going to place her boy in. It's not just that she fashioned a basket. She made that thing watertight. I can't imagine her prayers. As she put the bitumen in the pitch around that basket, knowing what it was for, knowing what one day she's going to have to do. And in the quietness of those nights, over tears, I assume, she was offering worship to God that no one else on the planet could. When the Bible refers to, like, like at one point we throw our crowns before the king. This is what it's talking about. That in the midst of everything, God, you are good. Moms, the service that you offer, the physically exhausting, emotionally exhausting service, particularly in the first part of parenting, can feel like such a drain. It can feel like it's taking everything out of you. And I've known people who are like beating themselves up because they remember college when they would have these like hour long times of reading God's word and all these things that were awesome and beautiful and thankful and that your season, it's not like that anymore. And you're like, oh, what am I doing? I'm doing something wrong. And I want you to know that you're offering in those spots that no one sees. It's worship. It's worship. Motherhood is also about sending. We knew this was coming in the story. You're familiar with the Moses story. But it's sending that's often 
maybe always mixed with pain in some way. It's mixed with a pain that is almost beyond words. There came a moment for Jochebed in which the, the little one that she had raised, that she'd carried, that she'd hid for three months, that she'd fashioned this basket for, that it came a moment where she had to let go of the basket. She had to let go. And in that, and I don't think many of us are going to be called to let go in the same way, but all of us, as little ones grow, are called to release and send. And to some measure, it always hurts. To raise and send kids is a model for the whole church that mothers uniquely picture. They carry this little one in the womb And then it's no longer in the womb. And there's a moment of letting go that has to happen that is always hard. It's a picture of open-handedness before God. And one author puts it this way, Abigail Favalli, in her book, Into the Deep, I'll just give you some of it. I think the whole quote's up here. But I'll just give you some of it as she describes this. Yet something was happening with my heart. It no longer belonged to me. It no longer sat easy under my ribs. My heart now lived outside of me, hovering in the space between, tethered now to another impossibly fragile new life. Finally, I'd say this what we get in the text and what we see and know intuitively to be true, but often just move past is that mothers are making a generational impact. And I say this, our text gives us directly that this is not just Moses's mom, Miriam's sister is here in this story, watching over, participating. She's also the mother of Miriam and she's a part of this story as well. There's Aaron and there's this baby Moses. And so often the lies that we, we feed ourselves, that somehow I'm just sacrificing everything. So I guess I have to be a mother or I'm just dying to myself so this other can live. And somehow we've bought the lie that the culture gives us that somehow it's second class or it's a demotion to be a mother. The word of God tells us something different. It speaks a better word. And so I wrap up with this, a quote from Rachel Jankovic in her article posted on Desiring God. I'm actually gonna skip the first paragraph and start here in the middle. Motherhood is not a hobby. It's a calling. You do not collect children because you find them cuter than stamps. It's not something to do if you can squeeze the time in. It's what God gave you time for. And Christian mothers carry their children into hostile territory. When you're in public with them, you're standing with and defending the objects of cultural dislike. You're publicly testifying that you value what God values and that you refuse to value 
what the world values. You stand with the defenseless and in front of the needy and you represent everything that our culture hates because you represent laying down your life for another and laying down your life for another represents the gospel. Church, will you bow your heads with me?